it's fitting that on Super Bowl Sunday, what do you love? The subtitle of the series, Sports and Entertainment. Because that is one of the big things that we love. We do. You know, and, and we're not, we don't feel any regret or any shame in saying that. You know, turn with me, by the way, to Exodus chapter 20. Um, you know, I'll say, I love Auburn football. Nobody thinks anything of that. Me saying that I love Auburn football. And it, so much so that you can walk by perfect strangers wearing a, some kind of paraphernalia from Auburn and they'll talk to you. War Eagle. You know, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, somebody coming from another planet would probably wonder what about the values, you know, of, of people who just, it's this fascination, although if they're coming from another planet and they're created beings, they have their own idols, I'm sure. Sports and entertainment. You know, as a kid, I realized that my grandfather got most of his information, outside information about the world <laughs> delivered to him by horse. I mean, somebody would have to come over to his house on a horse to, you know, say something to him. He, my grandfather, my grandfather saw his first car as a young adult. My father listened to Auburn football games with his brother on the radio. I remember getting our first TV. I mean, when you think about how things have changed, I mean, right, that, that's how we used to get our information, that's how we used to get our entertainment. And, and, and now, it comes to us in barrage after barrage. It is, it, it, we started getting our information by images. And that changed, that really did change everything. The internet brings so much information to everyone. And it caused information to, to go personal with personal devices. And it began, the information began to take on a different role in our lives. During the days of the horse, the information was simply just stuff that was important to your specific community. Now, it's not just simply information and news. It is entertainment. It's not just information. We crave it because it entertains us. 20 years ago, no one had a cell phone. I did, as a teenager, if you'd said the word email to me, and I had no idea what you were talking about. My research in the early years of ministry was 
just articles and subscriptions and news magazines. Cut and paste involved scissors, tape, and a Xerox machine. Today, if you don't like or get bored with this message in a few minutes, you can pull out your phone, Google cuisine of South Korea, look up for your favorite Korean restaurant, poke the person next to you and say, let's go get lunch, and then you still have 30 minutes of this message to endure. As a kid, I looked up box scores of last night's game and tried to figure out what happened and hoped that the Washington Post would reprint a UPI article of the Auburn game so I'd get a little more feel of what actually happened in the game. Today, I can go home, cut on YouTube TV, go into the library, pull out Wednesday night's Auburn-Alabama game, watch 10 minutes of the most important plays in the game, and I see Auburn smash Alabama. Amen. Stats. NFL stats. There are just incredible businesses that are built on nothing but NFL stats. Information right at everybody's fingertips. Travis Kelsey scores a touchdown and in moments I hear that he has 300 yards after catch since the last time he kissed Taylor Swift. I mean, that is overload. That is how we are being barraged and it affects everything. It affects our relationships. I used to, I used to have to wait till the weekend to get caught up on, you know, information about pertinent information about friends. And now I know every time you work out, I know every time where you, I know where you are. I know how much time you spend there. I know how your bowel movement went. There is just, we get so much information. Images, sports and entertainment. And I'm not saying sports is not entertainment. It is. Sports and entertainment dominate our lives as Americans. And is watching and playing and Watching movies and programs, and is it in and of itself sin? No, obviously not. But it would be foolish of us to think that it's not constantly, relentlessly pulling us in a way so as to make the innocuous statement, I love football, I love movies, take us to a place of worship and idolatry if we let it. So now let me read you Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, third and fourth generation. <clears throat> Actually, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. So here's Moses' interpretation of what I just read. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all of his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then goes on to say, teach them to your children. That's Moses' interpretation of the first and second commandments. Which, by the way, is also Jesus' interpretation of the first and second commandments. So Moses got it right. Worshiping the right God in the right way is at the heart of all that we believe and all that we do. And the, the sports and entertainment industry is in direct competition to that love and to that worship. And it presents us with images that can be very dangerous to us. You ever wonder why, I mean, you probably have it, but we don't have like crosses up here. We don't have statues. We don't, have you ever wondered about why that's true? Throughout our history, we've, we've not wanted our buildings. We've not wanted our meeting places to become a fascination for us. That's the impulse of the second commandment. What's, if you go to a Catholic building, most Lutheran buildings as well, what's different about what you'll see there? You go to a Presbyterian church, a Baptist church. What do you see? Icons. That's the Latin word for idol. You see icons, see images, you see statues, you see Jesus hanging on a cross statue. It, it, the, the icons are central. You may not know this, but Catholics and Lutherans number the commandments differently than people in the Reformation. The first commandment is... You sh for us, is you shall no have no other gods before me. The second commandment is you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything like it. In Catholic and Lutheran theology, those two verses are the first commandment. The ninth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The tenth commandment is you, you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. Loosely speaking. And whereas that is the 10th commandment for us, because one and two are different. 
So think about that for a minute. Why? Why is that? Why is it divided differently? And what's the result? The first commandment speaks of God's identity and the exclusivity of that identity. The second commandment implies that our worship needs to reflect that theology. Okay? And as J.J.'s favorite Catholic, C.K. Chesterton says, cease to worship God. We do not worship nothing. We worship anything. That's a great quote. You know that when King Jehu, who was praised in the Old Testament for eliminating, it says that, that, that so Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel, right? But then he didn't please God because he destroyed Baal worship, but he did not deal with the golden calves that Jeroboam, I think, built. So why is that? See, the golden calves were not about worshiping cattle. They were a representation of God. They were to remind, the, the thought process was we need something to look at to remind us that God, the great God, the strong God, delivered us out of bondage. And so they didn't destroy. And so Jehu was not considered a good king because he, yeah, he got Baal worship out. But then the golden calves, rather than representing Baal, just represented Jehovah which he was going to have none of. So I'm belaboring this, this lesson in idolatry. Because it's an important, it's, this thing about images is important to understand in relationship to how, how our minds takes things on and how these images, when we say we love football, when we, when we fixate on, you know, when I say I love Marvel movies or I love Star Wars movies or whatever, when, when, we're, when we're talking about those things and, and not everybody understands that I don't bow down, at least I don't think you think I do this, bow down to, you know, Thor because of this wonderful, you know, entertainment that, I get from, you know, watching these things. But I would be a fool to think that I don't have to be careful about those images and how they affect me. When I say I love football, I have to be careful that I don't think that these things are not affecting me. Ezekiel 14 is just an illustration of, I think, a clever illustration of how even in the Old Testament, there was this understanding of just the silliness of 
idols. Uh, Ezekiel 14, starting in verse 1. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. These men have taken their idols into their hearts. Let that ring in your ears. These men have taken these idols into their hearts. And set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord your God. Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of idols that I may lay hold of their hearts of the houses of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like and how they, they carve these images, they carve these idols, they make these things, they eat their food off of them, then they wash them, set them down and worship them. I mean, he just, you know, it just, there's just the silliness of what idolatry can become. But the idea there is they take them into their hearts. Take them into their hearts. Idolatry. These images. It's a battle in our hearts. An idol is not simply a statue of wood, Ken Sandy says. It is anything we love and pursue in place of God. And can also be referred to as a false god or a functional god. In biblical terms, an idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivate us, that masters or rules us, or that we serve. Jesse was talking last week about you can't serve two masters. Bob Dylan said you got to serve somebody. You serve the devil, you may serve the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. You know, we, we, we tend to choose our masters rather than let our master choose us and come near to us. Idolatry, these idols, these images, they limit, they limit God. You know, they floor this great, you know, they're, they're trying to, Marvel's trying to build these images of, of these Gods that are lesser than, you know, and, and, and they just end up, I mean, you think about the trajectory of Thor in the Marvel movies. I mean, he was this great, you know, and then toward the last movie he was in, he was fat, drunken, you know, strong guy. It just, it, it, it's, that's where our idol, that's a good picture of what our idols are. What does all this have to do with sports and entertainment? We worship what we love. That's the trajectory. When we say, I love sports, apart from the intervention of God, I end up worshiping sports. I love my car. Apart from the intervention of God, I end up worshiping that car. I love my wife. Let's Bring something real here. Apart from the intervention of God, I end up worshiping her. That 
That's where it takes us. We are addicted to sports and entertainment. We are addicted to the things that stimulate, stir up things in us. That's, just not, my, that's not just my opinion. There's plenty of scientific evidence for it. There's plenty of research done on this. The brain, you know, from, from reading creates the images and promotes a healthy imagination most of the time. Watching images, the work is done for us. It's done for our brains. And the brain doesn't so much as process that as it does feel it. Existentially, existentially feels and, and, and takes it in. It's not so much a, a, a thinking about dwelling upon, uh, uh, you know, considering and and. and and ultimately then ending up at worshiping, it's, it's, it sees and then feels and then responds. It's what happens to us. And we get barraged by image after image after image. And there's just so much information, more information, more information. There's just so much. Information age does not promote deep thinking and reflection. It makes us shallow. And superficial. Kevin Young said, busy, distracted, overcrowded lives that are addicted to chronic stimulus and prone to shallow thinking are life environments that are hostile to discipleship and growth and fundamentals of the faith. He actually goes on to say, these things rob us of joy, heart of passion for spiritual things and create a form of soul rot. What a phrase. Feel, feel. What do I mean by that? You ask my wife, and I think my children too, if you were to ask them. I've, I've never just flat out yelled at my wife. Gotten angry and just yelled at. I, I, I mean, I don't remember doing that with the kids either, but one of them might correct me. But I, I, you know, I wasn't a yeller. I didn't throw things. I didn't, you know, that kind of thing. I self-control. When Josh was in high school, I ended up coaching the basketball team, and which was a lot of fun because while I was not very good at basketball, Josh was, and you know, vicariously there was this, you know, I really enjoyed it, and he was good. You know, he was the leading score of the team actually at one point was on the top 10 scoring list in Washington DC of basketball players I mean it was good best you were number one? Oh, baby but the, the he he was a good basketball player he scored a lot of points I it was fun to coach we were in competition for the championship it was we were playing it wasn't the championship game but we were playing a game against the team that we were battling, you know, first place with at their gym. And the refs were just atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. Shocking, right? They were atrocious. It was in the first half. I don't know, it might have been in the first quarter, but it was certainly the first half. And he picked up his third foul. And I was furious. Not at him, but at the bad roughing. 
And it just was, you know, starting to yell at him or whatever. I sent God to the table to take him out. Before play stopped, he committed his fourth foul. We still had three quarters of the game to play. There was no way we were going to win the game, apart from miracle. And I started just really going after the refs. Now, this is a Christian school, okay? We're playing a Christian school. I'm coaching for a Christian school, ostensibly. And, it, and, and I was just going after him. And every, I don't know why. Everything kind of got quiet for a moment. And some, one of the fans yelled out, sit down, coach. And I turned and I screamed at the top of my lungs, shut up. I just put my head down. Called the timeout. Walked across, went up in the stands, asked his forgiveness, came back. Sat down. I don't know. I don't think I got up out of my chair the rest of the game. Feel. That's what was happening. Is that, that this underlying battle with the love of sports, with the, the, the love of, of fame, with the love of victory, with all of the good things, positive things that at times sports can mean. There's also this battle for our souls that it means so much that a pastor who, and, 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 and listen, <laughs> what made it even worse was at the end of the game, woman came up and, and, and said, oh, I, I'm so glad that you went and asked his forgiveness and, and, and did that because we have a little book study group in our church where we're using your book to go through stuff with parenting. Oh, thanks for telling me that. That's great. That's really great. <sighs> What can take a guy who's never yelled at his wife, and I don't think really ever yelled too much at his children, just lose it. Embarrass himself and his family. Quiet the whole gym with his outburst. Idolatry. Sports and entertainment. We love sports and entertainment because, first of all, because they are a distraction. They, they keep us from having to do the hard work of relationships, of controlling our temper, of being kind and thoughtful to one another. They distract us from the work that the Spirit really wants us to do. They're not evil in and of themselves. We are the evil ones whose hearts engage with these things that are meaningless until we invest the meaning through our worship of them. And sport and entertainment are the biggest gods that we fall prey to, all of us. We even get 
trapped. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God offers us in himself the springs of living water. We dig out wells that capture the water, but then get broken and, and destructive, and then bring in all kinds of, of uh, sicknesses and diseases and, and just the, that water just sits and it, you get the picture. We give up springs of living water because we want to go back to that well, to that cistern to get what we like and want. That's the picture. So what is saying this, that the, I'm talking about sports and entertainment that lead us down roads that are destructive, that rob us of the life the springs of living water of the Spirit of God. Derek Kidner says of that verse 13, this little parable of verse 13 on exchanging living water for broken, broken cisterns says it all. And to those who knew the latter experience, it would have spoken volumes. They would have understood that as being, oh, wow. My idolatry is like that broken, nasty cistern over there. The worship of God is spring of living. Water sports and entertainment can pull us from that spring of life. And we, in, we need to understand how our heart chooses that kind of servitude. What happens to us? How, how, how can we understand and know the power, the control, that that the habits that develop from that approach to things, how we end up living our lives and fostering vices and how we find freedom from addiction and from controlling habits that are creeping in and taking over. Listen, all of us have a common struggle. It's a fight with our sin nature and the temptations that come with that. And even, though, even those who struggle with addiction... It is a more common struggle than most of us have thought. We are not fundamentally different from each other. Any differences are a matter of degree, not of kind. We are, metaphorically speaking, moments away from all kinds of addictions and being trapped. Listen, I love watching Red Zone. I love it because you, you just, all the games are going and they, they bring in all the, the, the you, they get in you know, to scoring position and we watch everybody score. And, and I just, I love watching that because it's the most exciting part of the games, you know, and, and, and it, there's the distraction aspect of it. But man, I, I, I see how it can affect people. 
Like I've got people in my family, sons, who they, they watch Red Zone to keep up with all the stats because they've got, they're in three or four different, uh, what they call fantasy football leagues and they got different people, you know. And so I'll, I'll hear them at times, they're watching a game and it's like, no, don't let him score. I didn't have him on my team. And then you start adding betting to that. Where you're taking, you know, points for how many, you, you're putting money down on this guy getting so many points and this guy scoring so many things. And you're watching the game. You're not thinking about who's in first place. You're thinking about, am I going to lose money? I mean, you watch the commercials that go on all, all day on Red Zone and, and on other NFL games. And it, said, you know, it says, you know, bet responsibly and, you know, be careful. And if you have a trouble, call this number, 1-800-YOU'RE-AN-IDIOT. You know, there's just that, that it, 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 it's, it's pulling. It's, it's taking the fun, if you will, of a football game, basketball game, whatever, and just pulling pulling towards something else. It's not just enough to sit and watch your favorite team win or lose. You just get pulled further in and further in and then all of a sudden you're gambling on eight games a week. The decisive difference between people is not whether one is an addict or a non-addict. It's whether a person is a once-born in sin suppressing the knowledge of God person or a twice-born in Christ but still battling sin person. We, we, are, we are prone. We, one man said, our hearts are a factory of idols. We produce them all the time. James one more verse, James chapter 1. That wasn't, I'm almost done. That's just the last verse we're going to do. James 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There's a lot here about temptation and trial and different use of words. But listen to verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That word desire there is the same word for lust. They can be used interchangeably. It can be a neutral word, but it's not neutral in this setting. It's not, it, it, it would be better to say, tempted is lured and enticed by his own lust. Then desire or lust, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. There, there, there's, a, there's a lie about our feelings and our passions that are out there that says that, that and, and listen, I've heard in counseling, I've heard people say stuff like this. God understands why I yield to this. 
God understands. He's made me a very passionate person. My passions are strong. So he understands and knows why I, I give in to them because they're so strong. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God, common to man. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, we'll make a way of escape. We all have a way of escape. And while it is true that th this word can be neutral, it's not neutral here. The, the, the subtle sinfulness of our desire, our lust, it lures us to eventually take a, a death-dealing bite. Take the bait of some fantasy or some picture or image that leads us to say, oh, you're being so dramatic. Now, the fact of the matter is we can no longer trust our own natures. There is within us a deep well, to use that cistern illustration, of dominating and alluring desires. There is within us a fatal weakness which guarantees that we will fall short of God's glorious intentions. And that fatal weakness is our love of the images and the things that distract us, that keep us from having to do the hard work of sanctification, a work that the Spirit of God does with our hard work participation. The basic problem is too much desire? Really? Is, is pornography just a, oh, I, you know, my appetite is just too strong. Or I don't have accountability. The issue of lust is, is not just the wanting something more. It's that it becomes the center and focus of our desires and wants. And sports and entertainment play into that lust, that desire. It's about stirring us up. And those desires become the center of all that we do, all that we feel, and all that we think. Our only hope is a greater gospel. Yes. That's our only hope. What we need to protect us from this is not, now maybe this would be a great start, but, but the answer is not to smash and throw away the TV. And to, th and to think we can control even things for our children, no, they're just going to grab their phones and go sit and do whatever they can get everything and more from the phone. It's not just saying, okay, we're not going to participate in these things anymore. No. The answer, what will protect us, is a greater gospel. A, the gospel is greater than anything we can imagine, and yet we don't believe that. 
lust and inordinate desire is, is a desire that's not governed or guided by God's word in our lives. Things we typically desire created by God, beautiful gifts that he gives us, are dishonored and degraded because they interact with our wants and desires and lusts. We do the corrupting, not them, not the out there. We're doing the corrupting. The way that images can affect our minds and degrade the reality around us is reflected in, for instance, how women are viewed and how there's this, this struggle that a lot of women feel in terms of I, I can't measure up to those images. What, what am I going to do? The, the battle then becomes, that it's like I'm not worthy. And I, you know, because there's this, this lust for this particular kind of image and, and I can't measure up and I'm less than. And, you know, and so there's this battle that goes on at where the, the women are then objectified and degraded and all that. And it's an awful industry, by the way. But to think that that doesn't happen in other areas. I've gotten into the bad habit of watching Hallmark movies with Cherie. It's awful. I, I, not last night, but the night before last, I was doing his message. And I'm done and I've come in and, you know, she's halfway through a Hallmark movie and, and so I'm, you know, I'm watching it. She falls asleep. I come in halfway through the movie. I'm sitting there at the end of the movie crying. <laughs> I've been reduced. But part of the reason was Speaking of images, I can't live up to that image of that dude who is so kind, has all the words written for him that really does speak of his heart and his care and, 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 and women are just, you know, falling in love with him. And, and my wife watches that all the time. I can't live up to that. I have self-esteem problems now. I'm obviously kidding, but there's, there's, these kinds of things pull us away. And we cannot live our Christian lives as if salvation is disconnected from real life. Fighting is the evidence that we believe that God is worth fighting for. Justifying faith fights temptation and sin. 
We, yes, we can do what the iconoclast in the, in, in the Dark Ages did where they broke into the Catholic Church and smashed all the idols because they were evil. We can smash the TVs. We can rage against all of these the worldly things. But that's not where the battle is. That's a dumb idol. The battle is internal. How do we lay hold of eternal life? Internally, we wrestle, we fight, we hold on, we fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of that eternal life. The great error of our day is that faith in God is one thing and the fight for the holiness, fight for holiness is another. They are not two separate fights. Justification is by faith. Sanctification is by works. No. We start in the spirit, but we press on in our own strength. No. Obedience is optional. Only faith is necessary for salvation. No. Obedience is necessary for salvation because it is the fight of faith. It is itself the fight of faith. And when somebody else is being disobedient, it is not an external fight. It is not an external rebuke. It's not an external they just need more accountability. I just need more accountability. That, we, we get into that thing of, of uh, oh, oh, he fell again. He struggled again. Oh, well, but, I, but my accountability partner didn't call me. Well, I'm your accountability partner, so it's my fault? No, it's a fight of faith. Obedience is the fight of faith. And our care for people is to help them fight the fight of faith, not do more good deeds. They need to do more good deeds, but they're not going to do it without the fight of faith. Cherie said something to me on the way in. When we first got TVs and we had TVs and, you know, TV was gaining in its influence. We didn't have to worry too much about what they, our kids saw on TV, not so much because it wasn't bad things to see, but because the TV was out in the open. And if somebody's watching it, there was always the possibility somebody was going to walk in and would see what they were watching. So that, yeah, it, Not anymore, You've got phones. But that picture of the TV open out for everybody to see. We need to live in open community with one another. When people are struggling with sin, addiction, when they're struggling with, with these loves of theirs, it's not the love itself, it's the heart that's being affected. And the open community, yes. 
The open community is a relationship at the heart level, not the action level. The action level is important. It is the fight of faith, but it is a fight that is internal to the person. Regardless of sports and entertainment, the habits and preferences, it's a level field. It's an issue of the heart. We are more alike than we are different. And community transforms people. Living the gospel together, not just believing it, but living it together is part of the fight of faith that helps us to mature. Our challenge is how can we, as a body of Christ, be with one another in the midst of struggle, differences, lapses, confusions, inordinate loves? How can we be more adept at cultivating a culture of honest speaking and safe listening? Listen, the, the, the second commandment, if it says anything to us, it says what's important is not seeing God watching God, it's hearing God. It's listening, not viewing. God speaks. He doesn't come to us in images. He speaks to us because it's speaking that engages our whole being and captures our hearts. Watching makes us passive and given over to how we feel about what we see. We don't feel about what we hear. We ponder. We consider. We yield to the truth of what God says.